Hi, and welcome to Listen Up A-Holes, the only Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast that beat you with the laptop we won in a bet. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media. And I'm Joshua Unruh, superhero scholar from Pulp Diction Productions. Together, we're working our way through the good, the bad, and the ugly of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So listen up, A-Holes. We're going to talk about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. All right, so we are starting with Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. This episode is going to cover season one, episodes one through four. All right, so Joshua, what you got for me for comic book history? I got to tell you, it's pretty tame. Oh, yeah? I mean, relatively tame. (laughs) Well, relatively, though. (laughs) I mean, there's no MODOK this time, but I mean, yeah. (laughs) Now, part of the reason that it's kind of tame is that we dealt with S.H.I.E.L.D. largely mm-hmm. yes. during Agent Carter, which mm-hmm. I will admit, again, is a little weird that I didn't wait to do it here. But at the same time, it is so much more thematically in keeping with Agent it's Carter. Right. Well, and that's what the SSR, I mean, it is proto-S.H.I.E.L.D. It is the very beginning of S.H.I.E.L.D. So, yeah. Yes, totally. It, but that mid-60s spy-fi vibe. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is very much the you know, the modern air to that. Yeah. We've had a few of those, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but as far as that decidedly retro feel, right. it wasn't retro mm-hmm. when it was being done on Man From U.N.C.L.E. and stuff like that. So thematically, it just made more sense. So it's a little weird. But I do get to talk about a staple of S.H.I.E.L.D. technology. All right. The flying car. <laughs> Lola. <laughs> well, here's the deal. Yeah. None of them get a name in the, in the comics because there's a bunch of them. Oh, wow. Like, if they're in order of synonymous with S.H.I.E.L.D., it goes mm-hmm. Nick Fury, Helicarrier, Flying Car. Wow. They literally showed up in the first appearance of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh-huh. Strange Tales, number 135, which is a number you have heard before. Yes. <laughs> Because it is the first modern appearance of Nick Fury, like post-World War II. It's Uh the first modern appearance of Hydra. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the very first time we hear about S.H.I.E.L.D., the very first time that Nick Fury is recruited to lead it, he gets to drive around in a flying car. All right. Awesome. So S.H.I.E.L.D. agents get to use them all the time. Okay. Um, There are a couple of them floating around that are not. S.H.I.E.L.D. specific. Mm -hmm. One of them, of course, belongs to Tony Stark. Well, of course. Sure. But because in the comics, he designed them, you know, in the Mm -hmm. MCU, it was Howard. We saw that. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, in First Avenger, we saw Mm -hmm. a failed prototype. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So he gets one, of course. And um, Mr. Fantastic, Reed Richards of the Fantastic Four also gets one. Mm hmm. Which is different than the Fantastic Car, which is also a flying car, but more like a flying station wagon because they're a family and there's four of them. <laughs> what, they couldn't get a minivan? <laughs> it's an open air minivan. It's an open air minivan. <laughs> Especially once they start having kids yeah, and they you need got a space family. for the kids too. You gotta, yeah. you gotta get a bigger car, you know, bigger flying car. Now, in a way, I'm a little confused by their choice of the Corvette. Yeah. In the show, if only because 
that model of Corvette is kind of concurrent with when this first appearance of S.H.I.E.L.D. came mm-hmm. out. So right. they could have used what was the original flying car in the comics, the Porsche 904. Aha. Uh-huh. I mean, maybe they couldn't get one. Maybe they just decided the Corvette was cooler looking. I don't know. But, yeah. it, you know, every now and then they, they give these really deep cut nods on this show. Right. And then sometimes I'm just like, but why did you do that? And they'll just go off in a different direction. Yeah. Well, there's another one here in a little bit, actually, um, that they're so close that I'm just confused why they, but we'll get to it. But anyway, yeah, so it's been originally the Porsche 904, mm-hmm. but it's also been the Porsche Boxsters. It's been an Aston Martin Vanquish. Mm-hmm. That's definitely a nod towards James Bond, mm-hmm. you know. Did James Bond have flying cars? He did not have flying cars, but he often drove Aston Martins. Okay, all right. Like it was a signature car of, I believe... I'm going to get this wrong because it's been a long time since I watched lots of James Bond. But I think that tail end of Sean Connery and into Roger Moore were Aston Martins. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So definitely a recognition there in the comics of their source material, right. their homage. Mm-hmm. In typical Tony Stark fashion, though, he's the only one who gets one that's based on a Chrysler Prowler. Wow. Yeah. I mean, of course. <laughs> and if you know what a Chrysler Prowler looks like, you will be like, yeah, that's seriously the most Tony Stark thing ever. Like, it looks like one of the hot rods that he's working on in his own garage in the MCU. All right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to mention a word in terms of shield. It's okay. just a word, and I suspect we will return to it often. Mm-hmm. But somebody at some point uses the word disavow in okay. these four episodes. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to put a pin in that. Oh, is that significant? It is, because it's definitely a nod at their spy-fi roots. Okay. You may recall from Mission Impossible, should you or any of your team be captured or killed, you will be disavowed. Oh. The first Tom Cruise Mission Impossible film, Mm -hmm. he recruits disavowed agents to help him after he himself is disavowed. Wow. All right. So that's a significant concept within this particular kind of genre space. Yes. Right. Like you're you're not in the club anymore. We're going to pretend like you don't exist. And and in terms of if you're caught doing this shady thing, we're going to say we didn't tell you to do that shady thing. Right. Right. You got no backup. Yeah. Well, and also it's sort of a conceptual. It's just like, oh, we will not be trading people for you. Mm-hmm. We're going to declare that you're a rogue agent. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, so disavow, like it was just, it's one of those things that just made my ears perk up. And I was like, I know what they're doing. Uh Now, that leads into another one of those. And I was pleasantly surprised to see that this one did not make it into your list of Easter eggs. I was safe. My list of Easter eggs is paltry. I got nothing. (laughs) Well, look at mine, too. This is pretty tame again. It's pretty chill. But this was such an odd turn of phrase that Mm -hmm. I thought it might get your attention. Yeah. Mm -hmm. At one point, Simmons asks Ward if he's ready for their journey into mystery. Mm -hmm. That's a weird phrase, right? Yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. But if you know these magic words, (laughs) (laughs) Journey into Mystery was an anthology of horror stories in comics published by Atlas Comics starting in 1952. Uh Uh-huh. Atlas Comics eventually becomes Marvel. Oh, okay. And this anthology of horror stories kind of transitions more into like science fiction and giant monster stories. I mentioned how giant monsters were actually <laughs> right. a staple of mm-hmm. pre-Marvel Marvel. Marvel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And then Journey into Mystery becomes absolutely famous because it is the birth title of the mighty Thor. Oh. Thor's first appearance is in number 83. Mm Mm-hmm. And he shortly becomes the most popular thing in the book and takes over all of the page count. Wow. Okay. Interestingly enough, Journey into Mystery was the top selling Marvel comic of 1965. And that is all about Thor. Okay. Uh Uh-huh. And you could tell they took notice because in 1966 is when Journey into Mystery had its final issue with 125. After that, it was renamed the Mighty Thor. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, Journey into Mystery has been revived a couple of times since then. It's usually, but not always, when Thor isn't the center attraction of his own book. Okay. <laughs> you know, if he's off doing something else or presumed dead, and now it's Loki's book yeah. or whatever, mm-hmm. or the Warriors 3, you know, right. mm-hmm. um, the, the spotlight is off him. They have sometimes switched it back to Journey into Mystery, but it's never really stuck. Okay. But I will say... You know, that's one of those, if you have ears to hear, as soon as she said that, I was like, I know what you're doing. <laughs> well, that's really cool that they're throwing that stuff in there. See, I think I think they do some deep cut stuff like that. And, oh, definitely. Uh, so there's stuff that, that I, you know, like I picked up on one or two very minor things. But also part of that is because I know Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah. And so Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., because I'm so into the show and I've seen it like seriously like three or four times already all the way through heavens <laughs> i i really like this show um, okay so so there are a couple of things that like i've i've kind of caught up on just I, or i've kind of caught just kind of like you know when i'm when i'm into agents of shield i'll see it around or whatever but i i didn't really catch anything that deep that's a deep cut well i thought you might have just mm-hmm. when i was watching it because again it's kind of an oddball turn of phrase yeah. like it, mm-hmm. i thought it might be a thing where you were like google journey into right. mystery <laughs> I'll just give you one ahead of time. If anybody starts talking about having tales to astonish. Okay. Uh Yeah, that's one too. Now, here is possibly the biggest nod other than, you know, the name S.H.I.E.L.D. being Mm -hmm. at the top of it. The biggest nod to there being any Marvel Comics source material for this show at all Mm -hmm. in these first four episodes. Franklin Hall. Yeah, that's the one I knew. I knew that he had been in the comics. Mm Mm-hmm. So he is a Canadian physicist and researcher, and he accidentally merged gravitons with his own molecules, Mm -hmm. giving him the ability to manipulate gravity with his mind. (laughs) And at first he tries to keep it secret, but pretty shortly he is tempted to go a little over the top. Gets a garish outfit, goes on a rampage as graviton. Uh Uh-huh. Typically, he is not good at controlling his power, and he usually loses because of that. Like, they overwhelm him, or he, you know, is doing too many things at once, Mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Most recently, he's come to a prominent leadership position in AIM. Uh Uh-huh. He is their minister of science, which in that gang, it's got to be the biggest thing you can possibly be. Right, sure. Now, I've never really been a huge fan of him in the comics. He's kind of ridiculously powerful. So Mm -hmm. he's the guy you can trot out when you need a really ridiculously powerful villain Mm -hmm. without a lot of anything else going on. Yeah. You can raise the stakes by Graviton showing up in Uh a much less complicated way than raising the stakes by, say, having, I don't know, Dr. Doom show up. Okay. However, I loved Graviton on... A fantastic animated show, Avengers 
Earth's Mightiest Heroes. Uh-huh. He is actually in the origin episode and the reason that the Avengers come together as a team. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. It, that cartoon is legit great. And the origin sold me right away because I was just like, oh, it's not Loki. It's this. Oh, it's the island of Manhattan in orbit. Yeah, that'd get your attention. (laughs) Yeah, I I liked the stakes, the scale right away. Oh, cool. Okay, this is very interesting. Mm -hmm. I think that they were doing a thing with the walkie talkie wristwatch. Okay, is that a is that a comic book thing? It is a comic strip thing. Okay. Because it may remind you of the two-way wrist radio made famous by Dick Tracy. Uh-huh. Yeah. And you might recall this from the truly excellent Warren Beatty film in the 90s. <laughs> I've heard great things. I still have not seen that movie. It's pretty great. I hear good things. Yeah. In a rare turn of events, it has a novelization that is possibly even better. Wow. Yeah, written by Max Allen Collins, who actually worked on the Dick Tracy strip after the creator retired. So Max Allen Collins knew what he was doing with Dick Tracy, so it's not a surprise. But this is the one that confuses me a little bit Mm -hmm. because Coulson makes a big deal about how it's, you know, vintage collectible from 1936. Mm -hmm. But that strip debuted in 1931 and he had the two way wrist radio right from jump as near as I can tell. Uh huh. But Dick Tracy isn't in the Marvel Universe, though. No, he is not. Right. No, he is not. So, but but still, mm-hmm. it is such a iconic piece of equipment for him. Yeah. Now, Dick Tracy's kind of fallen out of the public eye mm-hmm. now. But I mean, he was the biggest thing going for decades. Wow. So, like I said, it starts in 1931. For those of you who don't know, Dick Tracy is a plainclothes police detective who actually used forensic science and gadgets in a battle against colorful gangsters. Uh-huh. Now, the gadgets and over-the-top villains 100% influenced Batman's growing rogues gallery. Okay. Uh-huh. And I will say that both conceptually, like we should make some of these, and also we should also not kill them off. Uh-huh. Because Dick Tracy couldn't bring them back. And they tended to die in hails of bullets. Right. <laughs> and when it comes to being a big deal, mm-hmm. their most well-beloved villain was a contract killer called Flattop. Oh, wow. When he died in the strip, America went into mourning for real. Like, it was a thing that, again, you know, kind of made papers in this unexpected way. Like, uh, people were talking about it on the radio, mm-hmm. like it would be a, uh, you know, kind of entertainment news yeah. now, except they didn't do entertainment news then. <laughs> so it made its way into like regular news. Exactly. Wow. It was the biggest thing going for a really long time, just like influenced lots of other things. And again, one of these really iconic, it's like yellow hat, yellow trench coat mm-hmm. and the two way wrist radio to the point where, and again, they did this a lot on the comic books that I was reading at the time. Mm-hmm. So I remember this very vividly. That was a huge part of the marketing for the movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like you had um, a silhouette of Warren Beatty sure. with that arm raised and him saying, I'm on my way for mm-hmm. months mm-hmm. leading up to the movie. Yeah. Like the two-way wrist radio is iconic to the point where in the 60s, it became a two-way wrist television. Like they just kept up with the times. (laughs) FaceTime. There you go. Decades before that was a thing. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to nod 
hard towards the amazingness of Dick Tracy because this strip is still running. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, newspapers are having a difficult time, of course, yeah. and funny pages are feeling that pinch as much or more as anything. But I mean, it ran forever and had immense popularity to the point where it had to evolve its storytelling over the years. So Mm -hmm. sometimes you'd get an update like the two-way wrist television. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when everything is science fiction and space agey, like the late 60s, Tracy goes off to space and becomes a science fiction hero for a while. Wow. And then he comes back and picks it right up. Like, it's not a relaunch or a reboot. It's part of the ongoing 30-plus year continuity. So it's like a genre shift within... Is that how that plays? Yeah. I, um, wow. I forget the details, but there was like a good reason where he kind of said goodbye to some of the supporting cast and mm-hmm. some of the supporting cast went with him and he just went off to space for a while. Wow. Again, there's a lot of influence on Batman from Dick Tracy in kind of a sideways manner. And this would be, I feel like, another one of those examples. Because Batman it just turns out to be sort of infinitely adaptable to genres that you wouldn't necessarily expect him to be. Oh, yeah. It's been done to Batman more, mm-hmm. but it was done first to Dick Tracy. That is so interesting to be able to take this story and shift into a different genre. And then move back. I used to read big giant collections of Dick Tracy mm-hmm. strips that my library had when I was a kid. And so I read some of that. So I, that's why I say like I kind of have the shape of it, but it's been so long since yeah. I read it. But mm-hmm. and, it, and it felt it was definitely a shift. It was weird, but it felt organic like it was part of the thing they were doing. How interesting. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. And it's a reason that I want to talk for just a minute Mm -hmm. about Dick Tracy's creator. Mm -hmm. His name is Chester Gould. He's a fellow Oklahoman. Oh, wow. I was actually aware of Dick Tracy and then only later became aware of Chester Gould and was like, oh, well, good. Now I now I like both the creator and his creation. (laughs) So he starts the strip in 1931 and worked on it until 1977. Mm So he personally managed a lot of those genre shifts. Oh, wow. And again, because of the movie, because of the Max Allen Collins mm-hmm. adaptation of the movie, because of the the collection from my library, I kind of had this existing soft spot for Dick Tracy. And then while I was at college, I discovered that Chester Gould went to my alma mater. Oh, wow. But he did it so long ago <laughs> that while my diploma says Oklahoma State, he went to Oklahoma A&M. Oh, He's just a master of long form serialized storytelling in a way that even comic books don't really match. Wow. Because you don't have 45 years of the same person running the story. Sure. You know? Yeah. Dick Tracy, if you're not familiar, watch the movie, mm-hmm. You read some collections, find them. They are still excellent. Wow. That's very cool. Recommended. But I I don't see how they could not be nodding at Dick Tracy with a walkie-talkie wristwatch. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But again, that was where I was confused, where I was like, but it was been in 1931. Why'd you say 1936? Like, Maybe a little bit of license there. Maybe whoever wrote it thought it was 1936. If you're going to do it, do it. If you're going to do it, do it. Right. Okay. Now, I have, this is less comic book history and more comic book theory yeah Mm -hmm. superhero theory because at one point in the very first episode Mm -hmm. mike says this is my origin story right Mm -hmm. and it's an interesting little bit of metafictional commentary i feel Mm -hmm. 
And since I know you have a bit of a love-hate with the concept of the origin story, (laughs) I just wanted to bring it up and talk about it for a minute. Well, yeah, origin stories are, I don't have a problem with origin stories because it is simply how, how did they become? How did you become this thing? You know? Um, So it is, you know, how did you become Spider-Man? How did you become Iron Man? You know? And so, and that's fine. The problem that I have with origin stories is that typically we slap them on the beginning. They're the first half of a movie but nothing is really happening. We're just showing, you know, Peter Parker getting bit by a spider or, you know, mm-hmm. um, or Tony Stark getting, you know, stuck out in a, in a cave, you know? Um, and I think that, like, you need to have that, um, that story going on at the same time. My big argument, because the thing is, like, I'm always talking about, you know, start your story where the conflict starts, end it where the conflict yes. ends, that's your story, yada, yada, yada. And, um, and that's, like, something that is not mutually exclusive with telling an origin story. It's not mutually exclusive with whatever other primary values you may have. Like whatever (laughs) it is that you go into a story for, because like I'll sit there and I'll be like, you got to do this. You got to do this. Everybody's like, oh, but I wanted the character story. I want to, you know, character driven, yada, yada, yada. Character driven, still a narrative. It's an internal conflict, still a Mm -hmm, narrative. You mm -hmm. can still tell the narrative is not mutually exclusive with any of the other things that you want to do with a story, with any other primary values. You want to be all artsy fartsy and everything. That's fine. You can still strap it to the back of a narrative that will carry your artsy fartsy stuff across the line. So like, I have no patience for any of that, you know? Um, But the, so the thing with origin stories is that people stop the story or don't start the story until they're done with the origin story. And then they start telling a story. And I'm like, there's no reason for that. It is not mutually exclusive. Iron Man, we saw, we had an origin story that was happening alongside the central narrative conflict with Obadiah. Of course, mm-hmm. we didn't really understand that, you know, they didn't land that, you know, as far as clarity in that early part of the story. But, you know, you get there. And in the end, it is a legit story from beginning to end. So I don't really have a problem with origin stories in that way but they do annoy me in that people tend to take it as an excuse that they don't have to start their narrative while they're doing the origin story and they do (laughs) and and i would say that the earliest comic book creators Mm -hmm. and then sort of the new earliest when you start getting to the marvel age Mm -hmm. would agree with you yeah Because it's kind of interesting that if you look at a lot of these, well, if you go back to the 30s and 40s with like uh, Batman and Superman, Mm -hmm. you get one page origins. Yeah, right. You actually don't get a one page origin for Batman even. He's just already doing Batman stuff for a few issues. Good for them. (laughs) Superman is largely like, again, it's one page like four panels. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I, I mean, to the point where the arguably best Superman story ever made still goes ahead and does his origin on the very first page, even though it's decades after and we all know it, but it also boils it down to four panels and eight words. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think they would largely agree with you. And when you get to the Marvel age, I think, again, they would largely agree with you, but they were dealing with comics in a different manner. Mm -hmm. Spider-Man's origin story is like eight pages. Yeah. So the end of it is him realizing that he has to go fight crime. Right. Mm -hmm. Like the beginning, middle and end is my life is pretty good with my family life, but my life is pretty terrible at school. Oh, look, 
I just got a way to solve all my problems. Oh, wait, no, they made my problems even <laughs> worse. Problems worse. And all of that is fine. Like, there's there's no reason why you can't form an origin story into an existing narrative conflict. There can be an internal conflict there for Peter Parker. And I think Absolutely. in some of them, I've seen them do that. You know, I've seen them do that really well. But in, like, the, the Christopher Nolan Batman Begins, holy crap I want to jump out of a window I hate that movie I saw the first 45 minutes of it and I'm like we're just doing this origin thing we haven't gotten anywhere with it you know mm-hmm. so like that annoys me when and okay fine you know the people out there who are yelling about the the Nolan Batman or whatever I you know I saw 45 minutes I got really annoyed I turned it off I haven't gone back maybe the rest of it's great maybe Dark Knight is great I haven't really gotten myself into the space where I can like watch all of those because it just annoys me so much um, but I think think that there's no reason why you have to and, and you shouldn't you know stop your story let, you know and have no story going on while you explain how all of these things happened agree you know yeah, yeah. and I'll tell you <laughs> I feel like Stan Lee agrees with you really really hard mm-hmm. because he's responsible for a lot of the earliest Marvel origin stories yeah. right or mm-hmm. at least he's half of the team all right. the time mm-hmm. He is on record. Now, again, Stan Lee will reinvent his own history, but this one I buy. Yeah. He is on record as saying he invented the concept of mutants so he could stop doing origin stories. (laughs) Right. How did they get their superpowers? They turned 13. Right. (laughs) There you go. They had they had hormones, superpowers. Right. Because the origin story means you can't get into the actual story. I mean, it doesn't. But I think for a lot of people, it feels like that. It feels like, okay, I've got to explain this whole thing. And essentially, it becomes prologue. It becomes backstory, you know, Um, unless you've got a narrative conflict that starts with the origin story that runs concurrent with the origin story, which I think for the most part, we've been seeing you know, happening in these movies. They've actually been doing overall, pretty well yes, with them. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, some certainly better than others, but overall, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I also have a complicated set of relationships with Nolan's Batman. And yeah. the idea that it takes a really long time for him to become Batman is some of it. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so that it was just kind of like the phrase journey into mystery. Mm-hmm, right. Being a person in a superhero story saying this is my origin story is sort of weird. It is. But also yeah. recognizes that they know who's watching their stuff. You exactly. know, like it's a conversation. That's why I come, it's metatextual, right? Yes. It's a conversation between the creators and the readers, mm-hmm. uh, the partakers of the fiction that's going on at least adjacent to the fiction because it's a little, like I say, out of character. Okay, so I I liked that Mike was aware of that Uh and I know a little bit about where he goes in this story and I, in fact, chose to talk about some of that later. Yeah. When it becomes much more obvious. It it becomes, yeah, and that's the thing. Like, a lot of stuff in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. will start out where it's not what it appears to be, but then later on becomes something significant to the um, to the rest of the you know the comic book background there. Mm-hmm. So um, so that's kind of interesting. The um, the thing that's interesting about 
about Mike calling out the origin stories is that origin stories come from the comic books, come from the telling of these stories, right? Right. And so yeah. here we have a world in which these things are real. These people are real. The heroes are real. So we have real heroes and we also have like a thriving, you know, comic book or, you know, in the, in the case of Captain America, movie reel. Right, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, or you know, radio show um, stories that were being told. So they're telling the stories of these people who actually really exist as well. So it's kind of interesting because you know his his kid is looking at all of the action figures, right? But they're action figures of actual real superheroes. And so the right. presumption, you know, so we saw in Avengers, you know, that Coulson had these trading cards, right? So all mm-hmm. of these, you know, the Captain America cards. Um, so this this idea that there is this industry telling the narratives in the same way that we have the industry telling the narratives, except that in this world, the source of those narratives just happen to actually exist. But we're still getting origin stories. We're still getting that kind of metatextual understanding of how the stories work. So I think that's kind of cool. It is very cool. And it is a thing. We won't go down this rabbit trail, but it is a thing that has been flirted with in the regular Marvel comics also, that Marvel comics exist in the Marvel universe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that they are licensed. Yeah. You oh, know, God. by yeah. the characters or in cases of, uh, uh, well, there isn't a Spider-Man comic book for most of it because mm-hmm. nobody likes him. Oh, Nobody right. But the Avengers stuff <laughs> yeah. is licensed by the Avengers. Mm-hmm. And in a delightful turn, <laughs> when She-Hulk is being a, an attorney to superheroes, yes. those comic books are admissible evidence. <laughs> wow. It's fantastic. Wow. Yeah, I like yeah. that. Her archivist is like your typical comic book nerd who just knows all the stuff and has instead of a law library it's just long boxes full of comic books in plastic bags and stuff oh so, my god i love that it's pretty great i mean it's the kind of thing where you are asking me to look at a part of your universe that could break your universe but you're doing it in a way that makes me happy so okay right, you know exactly <laughs> no i love that well, all right. So let's go ahead and, and dive into the production history here for Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, way back in 2009, when Disney purchased Marvel Studios, discussion of a television series based on the comic properties began. But it wasn't until 2012 that anything really happened. Uh, Bob Iger, CEO of Disney, greenlit an Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. pilot order after watching the Marvel one-shot item 47. So they had all these Marvel one-shots that they were making during you know the run of the movies. And that kind of created this interest in, you know, an Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. story, right? So coming off of the huge success of the Avengers, Joss Whedon started work on the show, developing it with his brother Jed Whedon and Jed's wife, Marissa Tancheron, both of whom worked with Joss on Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog, which I just have to tell you, if y'all haven't seen it, you should go see that. It's fantastic. It's wonderful. I absolutely love it. <laughs> it's got a really, really great soundtrack, too. Um, so those of you who are familiar with my work will know that I am big into the Joss Whedon I have two podcasts about Buffy um, and the spinoff Angel that I'm doing right now that's still pretty, which does Buffy, and still dead that does Angel. Um, And there's loads of interesting stuff happening on both of those shows. So definitely check those out. If you don't, if you haven't been watching uh, Buffy and Angel and all of the Joss Whedon stuff, you definitely should. It's fantastic. I sometimes get tagged in at random intervals. You certainly do. We're pulling so you it's into fun. Angel I love it. to talk about mystery men and superheroes, which is going to be really, really fun. So 
<laughs> but as a big Joss Whedon fan, you know, I was really excited that he was working on Avengers um, and starting up this new television series. Um, he is listed as a creator on the series and he co-wrote the pilot, but the day-to-day running of the show has been primarily left to Jed um, Morris Tancheron and Jeffrey Bell, who some may remember from his work on X-Files. That's how I remember him. He was one of my favorite X-Files writers, so it's always fun kind of seeing him here. Um, and I can say as someone who has watched all of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. to date, Joss Whedon left the show in really good hands. Um, Jed Whedon and Marissa Tentron and Jeffrey Bell have been doing some fantastic work, really interesting long-term narrative. Um, I am enjoying it incredibly, and they're really playing a lot with structure and form, not just in episodes, but in like the whole length of the season. So there's there's tons of really great stuff coming, I have to say. Um, so Ages of S.H.I.E.L.D. was announced in October of 2012 with Clark Gregg set to star as Agent Phil Coulson. And of course, at that point, you may remember Phil Coulson died in the Avengers so the show was already off to an interesting start where we were wondering exactly how they were going to pull that off I spent a great deal of time being assured that it would not be an LMD yes yes no I remember that question yeah because it's not smug comic book guy it's just like oh Coulson's back and I was like yes they're called LMDs (laughs) Tony made a joke about them yes they are as storied a piece of shield history as the flying car yes you know Yes. So, yes, but he's not, apparently. He's He's real. He's legit Agent Coulson. And answering the question, you know, of how he comes back is a big part of of what season one is about. So the first season is going to be diving into that, you know, no no big spoilers. Um, The ratings for S.H.I.E.L.D. when it first launched were massive. Um, The pilot debuted to over 12 million viewers, which is just huge. Um, But unfortunately, S.H.I.E.L.D. is a show that rewards kind of hanging in there, you know, Um, and the numbers dropped dramatically over time with the show averaging about 5 million viewers by its third season and averaging less than 3 million now in its fifth season. The live plus seven numbers are actually not that bad, um, but it's not one of the strongest performers, you know? Um, so it's it's one of those things where this is a show that is constantly on the bubble. You never know if it's going to get renewed or not. And it usually always does because ABC Disney owns Marvel uh, because apparently there are no longer rules for how many media properties any one thing can own and, you know, call your senator because it's not good stuff especially when you're talking about like local media ownership which has gotten way out of hand and the FCC needs to lock that shit down but that's a whole other discussion for another day all I'm saying is everybody out there do a search on Sinclair Broadcasting then call the FCC and leave a message on their hotline because it's bad Um, but anyway in this particular example the media incest is kind of working for us because ABC almost did not <laughs> renew Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. for season five until it was rumored Disney stepped in kind of like the dad that says the older brother has to keep driving the younger brother to school, you know. So while Marvel's doing gangbusters on the big screen, the TV properties really have more niche appeal. Um, but Marvel likes to keep these things moving, keep them in the grinder. So let's hope that dad steps in again this year. We haven't heard yet about a season six pickup as of this recording. 
uh, for Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but I'm such a huge fan, so I'm really, really hoping that it will happen, and the rumors are saying that that's going to be likely. Um, so a couple of things. Um, J. August Richard, who plays um, who plays Mike Peterson, and, uh, and you know, to become something else that will be significant to the comic books, which we'll talk about at a later date. Um, but he is um, actually from uh, Joss Whedon's show Angel. He played uh, Charles Gunn on Angel um, and is one of my favorites. So it was really, really fun to see him show up in this uh, in this episode uh, because, of course, it's, it's a callback to, uh, to the actors who have been on other Joss Whedon shows. And we're going to see that's the, not our last person to to show up from Angel um, in in this, uh, I think it's in this season too of Agents of Shield. Um, but also, anybody who's ever listened to my Outlander podcast, Sex and Whiskey, you know how much I absolutely love composer Bear McCreary's work. Um, he is also the composer for Agents of Shield and the star show Black Sails, which is this fantastic pirate show, um, which I also heartily, heartily recommend. Very, very good show. Definitely check that out. Uh, so for me, I was really thrilled to see Bear McCreary also working on this show. He is just a genius when it comes to musical score. And uh, and I think he does a really good job. And especially I, I, his work throughout the seasons as we go through uh, different villains, different, you know, big bads. Like everybody has a theme. Um, every different season sort of has its own musical feel. He doesn't just recycle constantly the same stuff over and over again. Really, really great stuff. Uh, I did not realize until very recently, like until we were preparing for this show, that Bear McCreary was the composer for this yeah, show. Uh-huh. But even though I haven't seen a whole lot of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., I noticed the score. And one of the reasons I noticed the score is that Marvel movies are notoriously bland. <laughs> In their scores. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, they're putting all their money and attention and everything to, like, the big showcase, you know, visual effects. So, yeah. No, that is no excuse. It's not an excuse. I'm just saying. I'm not saying it's okay. I'm not saying that I'm not disappointed. I'm saying that's where they decided to put their energy, and they didn't put it into the music. But the music is one of the most powerful things, you know, in TV and film. Absolutely. And there's no excuse for ignoring it. I'm absolutely with you on it. Yeah. As I'm not saying an excuse. It's a reason. It's almost yeah. a bizarre choice on their part to actually get a composer. Yeah. And a, and because a composer, their track record a composer is, like this. I mean, Bear McCreary yeah. is serious business. Right. Yeah. Their track record is, I, I don't know, <laughs> that guy. Yeah, no, it's but this um, is the real deal. So it's, it's really good, impressive. and it's only going to get better. Uh, you know, the the score right now is is kind of like the the basic starter score, but Bear McCreary just you know blows the doors off and does really amazing work as the show moves forward. And he'll he'll get different themes for the bad guys, you know. And I absolutely love the way that he does that. Rather than going to the same kind of tense music for every and recycling that for all the bad guys, we get different kinds of themes, and it can be really really powerful. Really wonderfully done. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, that that is actually a conversation that comes up fairly regularly mm-hmm. on my Batman the Animated Series oh, podcast, yeah. an animated discussion. Because when that was being made, you know, mid nineties in Warner Brothers, they could just walk down the hall to the orchestra. Yeah, because mm-hmm. yeah, it's Warner Brothers, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's just composers hanging around and stuff, right. and it shows. Like mm-hmm. the the music that they choose matters so much and it adds so much and again that's why i am very comfortable showing up here and snarking about the usual marvel movie choices but 
yeah, no, I, I'm excited to keep my eyes open for more of McCurry's work on this show as I go. Yeah, no, he's fantastic. Um, the work is incredible. And it really is, honestly, you know, bang for your buck. Sound is the most powerful thing that you can do in a film. I know it seems like the visuals are the really big deal, but they are not. Because the thing is, is that we're looking at the visuals. We're very conscious of the visuals. People are not conscious of sound. And sound can sneak in psychologically and do like amazing. Like if you ever, if there's a horror movie, you know, that you're having trouble watching people cover their eyes, cover your ears, turn the sound down and you're going to be, it's going to be not powerful at all. Like the visuals are not that powerful. It is actually Mm -hmm. the sound. And so when you're watching a horror movie, if you're like me, like some people can handle themselves with horror movies. Like I can't, I am completely (laughs) incapable of watching a horror movie. It's terrible. I always cover my eyes. Right. And then I listen to it and it's worse. It is literally worse. If you cover yeah, you're your just ears. imagining. Exactly. Because that power, this, the power of sound is so incredibly like it cannot be overstated. And um, to ignore that, you do ignore it to your peril to if you if you really work the sound. And, and so anybody out there who's in filmmaking or aspires to go into filmmaking, put your attention in the sound. That is going to be where you get your emotional impact. It's going to do so much for you. But the sound makes a huge huge difference and to ignore it is crazy so having bear mccreary shows that at least you know in this particular iteration of marvel that they absolutely know how powerful that is and how important it is so uh, so that's the production history for agents of shield and now we can get started talking about the show itself here we are we've got our first four episodes of agents of shield and i am a huge fan of the show i realize this is where like i'm going to be geeking out a little bit it's really hard for me not to just spoil the whole thing and like throw out to things that are going to be happening as we move forward and part of the reason why that's so difficult is because the first season of agents of shield feels like kind of a very standard a very by the numbers like the 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 characters are fun and you know we're going to definitely talk about that but it i can see why people dropped off of it i mean i did too like i stopped watching the first time i watched agents of shield i stopped it like episode 13 which by the way is right before it gets good but episode 13 is way too late for it to get good it it lost so much of its audience because everybody watched it and they thought it was just one of these kind of like standard you know sort of procedural kind of in the Marvel universe sort of thing. And it's really not, it is doing something so much more complicated and so much more interesting, but you don't find that out until seriously the end of the season. So I know I'm pulling you now you had watched, I think, did you watch the whole first season? No, good Lord. No. Yeah. Cause you drop off, right? For good reason. It dropped me at the pilot. Mm hmm. And then I came back and tried real hard. Yeah. And I think I also dropped off at like episode 13. Yep. And I don't know if I told you this, mm-hmm. but I was using a trick to make sure that I would keep coming back and watching Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. even though I was just kind of whelmed by yeah. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The trick was my child. Oh. Because his threshold is much lower. Uh-huh. Like they run around, they fight, they blow stuff up. Yeah. I was like, every day we're going to watch one of these at lunch, mm-hmm. you know. He'll keep me coming back. He also dropped off around episode 13. That's why we fell off. That was the furthest we'd gotten. Yeah. And yeah. And it's right before it gets good. Um, And the thing is, like, 
I feel bad because trying to pull people through, and that's one of the reasons why I think it's really great that we're doing these like four episodes at a time. People can yeah, kind of like yeah. run through them, and you know, everybody listening, if you don't want to watch like some of these episodes, like that's fine. You just we'll tell you what happens. It's fine, right? You know, right. we'll talk about it. But it is worth it. Like, hang in there. Um, it is so worth it. Once you get to the end of season one, and then you move into season two and through the rest of it, like once you understand what they're doing what they're doing is more long term long form than we think it is when you look at it you feel like it's just kind of this standard episodic and there's good stuff and there's good moments but there's nothing really grabby there's nothing really interesting about it um for me now going back knowing everything that i know about what happens later going back and watching it through from the beginning is always a joy like i really enjoy these these episodes because i know the more complicated things that are happening in the background but when you go through it like it doesn't feel that way you know um Mm -hmm. so i can see why it's really really hard hard for people to stick with it but i hope that everybody listening manages to stick with it and go through the first season with us and all uh, we're, we're gonna be going through a lot of it um a lot of agents of shield uh, throughout the the run of listen up a-holes um but it, it is really worth it i promise you <laughs> i promise you it is really i worth am it. pinning my hopes and dreams on you saying that okay. so <laughs> Because otherwise, man, just watching me drag my ass in here to talk about season three and just be like, yeah, I don't really know. Some stuff happened. Yeah. I don't want that, Lonnie. <laughs> okay. No, I think by the end of season one, like there's a point in the in the end of season one, and people who've watched all of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. know what I'm talking about, where you get this, this flip. And the thing that's nice about a good flip is that when you go back and rewatch after you know that, everything is recontextualized, you know. But unfortunately, in order to understand that, you need to get to the flip. And you can't get to the flip if you're bored out of your mind, which a yeah. lot of people are at this point. I'm glad that this podcast and you exist to drag me along because I believe you that the payoff is going to be worth it. It's so hard. I just to get haven't been able to get myself over the finish line. It is so hard to drag through it. It really, really is. I mean, it helps if you're doing other things, like if you've got it playing in the background while you're making dinner. You know, um, <laughs> it kind of helps if you just sort of have it as background noise until you get to the good stuff, and then it's fine. Then you're okay. Then you're going to be fueled and 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 plugged in enough. I think that you can keep watching it. But um, but we open with this like what is kind of fairly standard for not necessarily I don't know Marvel films but for tv shows in general right whenever you have a workplace tv show it is always about the family it is always a family story even though it is at the workplace and here we are assembling the team assembling the family you know right off at the beginning we've got colson pulling everybody in we open up with um with ward actually uh played by brett dalton um who when i first was watching the first season i referred to as cardboard kevin <laughs> because he was accurate this, you know this cleft chin he goes in alone he's a specialist he's tough and he's pretty and he's all of these things that bore the daylights out of me in a character um what did you think about ward when you when you saw him show up he sucks so hard yeah. Actually, that's not fair. I should answer that question the way that you asked it. I really like when he first shows up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. His initial introduction to us was almost my favorite part. Uh huh. But it got cut because Ward's in it. Right. Like, I don't, he's not, he is, he's your James Bond, right? Right. And mm-hmm. 
that's great when he's the, well, you know, sometimes it's great. But yeah. when it works, it works because they're the only one on the screen, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, in this larger context, I'm just like, Ward, stop talking. Ward, stop talking. Yeah, I hated Ward. I hated Ward through the whole thing. And I have to say, Brett Dalton, uh, who plays Ward as an actor, was like, I was not impressed with him at all. Um, later, I think I can predict everybody will be very impressed with this guy, but it's going to take a while to get there. Okay. Um, so I'm just going to, but like right now, you know, we've got this, you know, I work alone kind of thing. Um, he's kind of a, a jerk. Like later on in the second episode, 084, when he's talking to May, he says it was really smart of Colson to pull you out of retirement, right? As though it wasn't her call at all, as though it had nothing to do with her, as though Colson is moving her around like a piece of furniture, you know? So the fact that he used that language when talking to, of all people, Melinda May, as if Melinda May does not have her own agency, which she very much does, um, that kind of stuff really annoyed me. Um, you know, we have this uh, moment in the opening in the first episode where he fakes, apparently, uh, getting the truth serum to try to get Sky to stay and that whole Gramsci kind of thing like it did not play for me at all you know <laughs> like it sounded yeah. really stupid so a lot of the stuff with with Ward and what they do with him I, I have found less than compelling um, and so opening with him you know and we have that that weird kind of um, discordant fight scene you know where he's uh, he's doing the fight scene he's getting the the item that he needs to get you know while he's in in Paris and there's French music playing in the background while he's fighting <laughs> you know and so you get that kind of that kind of like nice dissonance you know there which can sometimes be really fun this sort of ironic dissonance which of course Joss Whedon is a huge fan of irony he has never met a moment of irony that he didn't love um, and and overplay sometimes. Um, so Ward, you know, as being like kind of our introductory character, he pulls us in. Then we we have that sit down with Maria Hill, which is really neat. And then that's when, of course, Coulson comes in. Coulson is our actual like main character, but we don't spend that much time with him in the beginning we don't open with him because we have to have this reveal right because we have that moment where um where ward says you know i'm level six i know that colson you know died at the in the battle of new york and then colson comes out of the corner he's like welcome to level seven sorry that corner was really dark and i couldn't help myself i think there's a bulb out you know, which is kind of a fun little, uh, fun little twist for Coulson. I like Coulson. Uh, Coulson is kind of near and dear to my heart. I love Clark Gregg. I, I loved him. I loved Coulson in, you know, in the movies that we've seen him in so far. He's always one of my favorite things. How did you respond to Clark Gregg and to Coulson? So I've mentioned before that I, I liked him mm-hmm. as kind of a, a through line to yeah. some of the other Marvel movies. Mm-hmm. But I just didn't fall in love with the guy like so many people, mm-hmm. you know, in, in this burgeoning MCU fandom did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when he showed up here, you know, when I really got a few more episodes in, I liked him better when he was kind of tougher and meaner uh-huh. in Iron Man 2. Right, right. Like, like he's just a little more no nonsense. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And you get a very different take on him in this. And to be honest, one of my still so far ongoing issues with the show Mm -hmm. is that it's way too smug 
with its own cleverness by half. Oh, yeah, it is. It is. I'll and I was that. afraid mm-hmm. that's what was happening to this this kind of hard ass guy that I kind of liked mm-hmm. from Iron Man 2. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, um, now I do like him as a paternal figure, mm-hmm. which he is, you know, to he's, this he's to this dad. family he's yeah. putting together. He yeah. winds up in that role. Mm-hmm. And so I like where he kind of winds up. But, you know, as far as that, uh, I'm trying to take a bite of the apple the first time. Yeah. I was just like, mm, I don't. Mm. Yeah. I liked the other Colson. I like the other Colson. Well, yeah. I mean, and he was he was really tough, you know, um, and that's it's kind of nice because he has this Clark Gregg has this very sweet kind of beta male energy. And when you mm-hmm. combine that with this this intense capability and this tough guy. You know, element. It actually really works and it works really well. Um, Coulson is definitely much more sensitive. I mean, you could say that dying in the Battle of New York, be it for eight seconds or 40 or for the ominous, he really doesn't know, does he? Kind of whatever that's about, right? <laughs> yeah. We'll find out. I think that, you know, you could say that that experience changed him and, and that's why we have this different. Coulson, but I don't Definitely. think that that's a... Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure that that's... Real. I think that they've just sort of expanded the character and, and made him into something a little different from what he was when he was a secondary character. That they're just, you know, giving him a little bit more. But they do have that built-in excuse for it. Yeah, because sure uh, a couple of people do make note and say out loud... Right, Akila Amador says, what happened Yeah, Yeah. I think May notices yep. a little mm-hmm. bit, but mm-hmm. yeah, Akil is the one that she's just like, what happened to him? Yeah. Like, not even to him. Exactly. What's wrong with him? Exactly. Right. That he's he's just different. So I think that we do have that kind of textually acknowledged a little bit, but I also think that some of it, some of it is this just like, you know, I mean, he's just, he's funny. Like, he's so incredibly right. snarky. I, I love how fun he is. I love how funny he is. Um, there's something about the way that he is so gentle and kind of dry in the delivery of his humor that is is really, really fun. And so Coulson, I like that he's tough. I like that he's still sensitive. He's still connected. He still cares very deeply for his team. We see in um, episode four, I Spy with Akila Amador, we were just talking about, um, how incredibly invested he is in his, um, in his people. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. she was one of his people some years ago, and he was still really invested in her. You know, and he actually, it was his faith in her that saved her. Yes. So I I like that. I like how dedicated he is to his team and to his people. No, I agree. And I think that barter charging Mm -hmm. Colson that I liked, which which still worked because he had this beta male chill and then would be like, by the way, I will tase you nearly to death. Right. And And you'd be like on the floor. That's what he said to Tony Stark. I believe that guy. (laughs) But you can't have that guy in charge of this hassle the weirdos yeah yeah like you'll you'll shatter your team you won't make a team you'll break people right you know right so yeah and having the textual excuse and then he winds up in a in a place that makes sense even Mm -hmm. if i didn't you know love it at first sure sure exactly um all right so the next one on our list in our family is may melinda may played by ming na um and uh you know we first open up with her she didn't want to go back in the field she's she's notoriously taciturn Shouldn't have a lot to say. Right. <laughs> I pulled a clip from the beginning. It's mostly Colson talking because she doesn't say much. <laughs> Melinda. You're really just asking me to drive the bus. I'm not asking. But it's a really nice bus. 
She just stares at him some. She just stares at him. Yeah. So much side eye. But I really, I like, um, I like May. I like how she doesn't speak much, but when she does, you know, what she says is powerful. You know, and it, it absolutely means something. Yeah. Um, I love the way Ming Na plays the role, um, and I love how incredibly kick ass she is. You know, but we see her too in this. We open up with her at a desk doing like paperwork. You know, which is obviously not what she's supposed to do. As we see her in action, as we see her, you know, she first says, "I don't want to see any action." You know, this is I don't want to be in the field. And then we actually by the end of the fourth episode, get her where she says, I want to be back in the field. You know, she's had a little taste of it again. Um, we get a sense of her backstory. We don't know exactly what happened in Bahrain, but we know that being called the cavalry is something to which she is very sensitive. Um, and that something traumatic happened to her that made her pull out of the field, even though she's really, really good at this kind of specialist work, you know, that that also um, that Ward also does. So um, so I think. I think that that Melinda May is honestly just one of my favorite characters um, in the whole run of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I absolutely love her. How did you respond to her? How do you see her after these first few episodes? I am most excited by far uh-huh. about her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you mentioned how Ward is slightly condescending a little bit and I'm just like dude she is what you grow up to be if you're lucky. If you're <laughs> lucky. You know? Yeah. And a comparison that that I make, so a little more comic book fun, like Snake Eyes from GI Joe. Uh-huh. Now go with me for a minute. Okay. Don't think about the cartoon. Don't think about those movies. I am not at all books, familiar with GI Joe. So I know no, of it, course, yeah. mm-hmm. nobody. It hit me just right. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. like I cared about the cartoons and then discovered there were comic books, yeah. and I was a comic book guy, and they were Marvel comics. Mm-hmm. You know, the GI Joe comics I read have more in common with Alias than anything else. Where. Yes, we are doing terrorist and anti-terrorist things, but Mm -hmm. it's because we know each other personally and hate each other. Right. You know, and I compare her to Snake Eyes, who was a mute ninja commando. Wow. In a mask. Mm -hmm. Like he could not emote in any way, shape or form. But as the story goes on, Mm -hmm. you just discover all these amazing hidden depths to this character. Mm -hmm. And so right away, I was like. Even before I dropped off the first couple times, I was like, May is the snake eyes and I care the most about her. Yeah, she's awesome. <laughs> That's going to be a good ride. That's going to be the one that pays off. Yeah, no. you know. Melinda May, I think, is one of the things that can keep you in, you know, that can keep you going with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. even when, you know, you're kind of struggling to get through the first season. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Melinda May is something you can hold on to for that. She's fantastic. Um, then we move into... Sky. <laughs> so, are you laughing because you're reading my notes? No, no, because I because you can't see my face. I hated so. Sky. No, because Sky is is. I mean, okay, I hated Sky so much in the beginning. I really did. Um, part of the reason is because she is this classic, beautiful girl. I'm sorry. She's supposed to be living in her van. There's no way she's got hair and makeup like that if she's living in her van. I know it's a TV show, but Chloe Bennett, the actress who plays Sky, is beautiful. You could have her with less makeup and less polish and make her so much more believable, you know? And so there was something about the fact that they took this incredibly beautiful girl, you know, and dolled her up when that's not the character that you're trying to have her play. She's playing, you know, like a hacker, you know, she's like, and so 
all of that I found really annoying. I find uh, her performance to be just a little bit too much. I really, really like Chloe Bennett. She is an incredibly powerful actress and you see her do amazing things as we move through. But in the beginning, I almost feel like she's directed to be a, a, a kind of a version, not a smart like capable version of the manic pixie dream girl do you see that yes right oh my god yes that is exactly the thing yeah and so it's really really annoying um and it feels like the only thing she's there to be is pretty which annoys me because the fact that she's smart and capable and that chloe bennett is an amazing actress to me felt like really i don't know it just felt insulting on a lot of different levels. So so your response to Sky, go ahead. Give me your response. The actual worst. <laughs> the actual worst. Now, I have one more piece of commentary that I'm going to save for yes. our final okay. group in the five-man band because mm-hmm. it reflects back okay. on, mm-hmm. on Sky. Yeah. But the, the actual worst. Like, I, the reason I... Oh, no. God. I don't... I don't buy her. Mm-hmm. I don't like her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you, this is another very too clever by half kind of setup. Yes, absolutely. Um, I just, yeah, she's really tough, and I think it's character stuff too. Yeah, it's not just the setup that they did, but she's supposed to be this like free information super hacker, but she rolls over to join Shield real quick. She I know does. there's some other stuff going on. Right. Well, we get that we get that one moment. I think it's at the end of the 084 when they're blasting into the sky yes. and she gets a text message and she says I'm in. So you know that there's something a little more going on with her. Um but yeah, it's 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 pretty even annoying. in arguments though. She doesn't she just doesn't have like the courage of her convictions in arguments. Yeah. Like in these conversations she's not as smart and capable in making her case as this person ought to be. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the thing. Like when I'm watching this in the beginning, I feel like the production team and the writers are just relying on her being beautiful, that that's the only thing that we really need her to be. And so we don't need to give her greater depth. We don't need to characterize her well. To me, it just, that was the thing that, that really annoyed me. And then we've got this thing, like, again, I said, there's, there's no irony that, that Joss Whedon is not completely in love with, you know, and we have this irony smash with her where she's like, you cannot stop the rising tide. You will not find us. You will never see our faces, but rest assured, we will rise against those who shield us from the truth. And nothing, nothing can stop us in the... Hey, what up? And it's this immediate undermining. Exactly. Like it's this, it's this immediate ironic moment and she's plays it it's just too cute she's just played to be cute when she has skills when she has an interesting philosophical space that she comes from and it's all like like runs on this surface thing the one thing that i did like with her that i thought that they gave her you know some some good stuff was in 084 which was the second episode usually one person doesn't have the solution but a hundred people with 1% of the solution, that'll get it done. I think that's beautiful. I liked yes. that we had that. That was a nice moment. That was maybe the only time I felt like she 
got the better of one of those conversations. Yes. Yes. And the thing is, you're not having these philosophical conversations with your friends in a coffee shop yeah. about how much information people should have. You are talking to the people with the information. You're talking to the people who hide the information. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You Tell know? them that they're awful. Right. <laughs> that this is wrong. Exactly. Like the whole thing. She's now on the inside. You know, why isn't she fighting them? Why isn't she pushing back? Why isn't she being more like annoying to them? Why isn't she, you know, and instead she's like trying so hard in that moment to get Ward's approval and, you know, and I'm like, wait a minute, like, why are you, why aren't you more edgy? You know, like there should have been more edge on her. But again, it just felt to me like she's beautiful. That's all she needs to be. So we're just going to skim through this. And that, that really annoyed me. I also do not on any level approve of the teasing of a possible romance between Sky and Ward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't like Ward. I don't like Sky. I should feel like, yeah, you two deserve each other. Go nuts. But instead, I'm just like, nobody is putting the time into this. I don't want to watch it. Right. Like, you know, it's, it's I'm hot. You're hot. Let's be hot together. They've got nothing else that really pulls them together. You they know? literally hate each other. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's just it's not. It's not good, um, yeah, you no. know. But and she's clearly supposed to be our viewpoint character. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, because she's the newbie, right? That's what you do. You get the new person who comes in and has right. to have everything explained to them, so that they can be kind of like the the audience surrogate, you know, so that everybody who needs stuff explained can have it explained while they're explaining things to Sky. But I don't like her, so she can't be me, right? And it's just hard. It's a difficult window to look into the show through it, it, so it really yeah. is it's a it's a big problem and i think that sky and ward especially both of them supposed to be so central you know to what's going on mm-hmm. the fact that they are not compelling characters is part of the reason why you lose so much so many people just bounce so hard off of the first season of agents of shield and i totally totally get it but it is worth it i promise especially because of the the last part of our family a, a two-person single unit fitzsimmons right so what did yes. you think about fitzsimmons i love fitzsimmons yes because they are fantastic it's so great. I, I love that opening. Oh, shit! That's the night night gun. What? It's all my stuff and it doesn't work, and there's no way we're calling it the night night the gun. The bullets work. Non lethal, heavy stopping power, break up under the subcutaneous tissue. Yeah, with a dose of only 0.1 microliters of dendrotoxin. I'm not Hermione. I can't create instant paralysis with that. The way the two of them fight back and forth and know each other so well, it's just so wonderful. Fitzsimmons stole the charm that Sky and Ward were supposed to have. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they're just dripping in it and Sky and Ward are just the Sahara of charm. I know. Yeah. That's my final comment backwards because I really love them. And that's the thing where I'm just like, I want these two on screen like all the time. Yeah. Well, and they give us that wonderful vulnerability, right? Because everybody else like May and Ward, you know, they can go out and they can kick ass and all that kind of stuff. And and Sky is even in training, right? You know, we see her even in these first episodes where she's learning how to handle herself and she's learning how to, you know, fight and, you know, grab a gun and all that kind of stuff. But, but Fitz and Simmons are, you know, our vulnerable, you know, smart people. They're the ones who do the tech. They're the ones that do the science, you know, and they are not made to be in the field. 
you know, this way. And it's one yes. of the things too that that um that Simmons says, you know, I, I shouldn't have pulled you into the field. I shouldn't, you know, this was wrong and you know, all this kind of stuff because we're not you're not ready. And the Fitz is like, You're no more ready than I am. <laughs> you know? right. I love that moment with the two of them. Um but they just really do have this wonderful vulnerability. And then we've got Fitz, right, who has all of these drones that he's created and he's named them after the seven dwarves. Like that tiny little bit of characterization is so wonderful. And it says so much about who this guy is and how incredibly beta male he is. His obsession with the monkeys. <laughs> if we had a monkey, we could get in. Oh, Fitz. If we had a small monkey, he could slip through the sensors and disable the fence's power source with his adorable little hands. I could it's go in. It's just so cute. And it's so sweet. And the, the monkey thing is something that comes back over and over and over again. It's a subtle thing. Like, we don't make a big deal out of the monkeys. But with Fitz, the monkey becomes like a symbol with him and it, it follows him, you know, well into like future episodes of the show. It's it's really, really fun. That's excellent. I'm excited about that. The lampshade they hang on the fact that Simmons has had that conversation about the monkey. Yes. <laughs> once or twice. Right. <laughs> Quite a few times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and I think. I don't know if they ever textually say it, but it's pretty obvious Mm -hmm. from the way that they treat the drones that Fitz is the one that named them. Yes. But Simmons is like instantly on board with it. You know, like she probably wouldn't have named them at all and maybe wouldn't have named them, you know, seven dwarves. But there's no eyebrow arch. There's no, you know, she's just, yeah, it's Sneezy. Sneezy's the one that's doing the thing. You know, she's on board with her partner's. She is, except for the night night gun where she's like we're not going to call it that and he's like no we're totally going to call it that <laughs> <laughs> which is just they're so great together they work so well together they have wonderful chemistry um, they're just fantastic and so that's the fifth part of our five-man band, right? Um, So let's go ahead and talk about the five-man band a little bit. Uh, For people who are unfamiliar, the five-man band is a classic structure for a team protagonist, especially in in shows like this. We will have a five-man band, and what this does is it gives everybody a specific role to play. And then when they're playing that role, they all work really well together, and people don't crowd into each other's spaces. So um, typically with a five-man band, you have five roles. You have the hero, who is the, the main guy that would be Coulson right because he is our main protagonist mm-hmm. he is the one who is the motive force behind pulling the team together and all of that we have the Lancer the Lancer is the best friend the Lancer is the one that that is the hero's you know right hand person so that of course is Melinda May um, we have the big guy the big guy is the guy who hits everything that's Ward um, we have the smart guy which of course is Fitzsimmons um, and then the last role is the heart Right. Which I guess defaults to Sky that she's supposed to be our emotional connection to the team. Um, Well, and Coulson kind of says so, too. But Mm -hmm. I mean, this kind of comes back around to that just not buying into Sky thing. Yeah. Sky's a Sky's a tough sell. And the thing with the five man band is that these roles can shift in flight. You know, that that sometimes you'll have like you would have in some circumstances, May will be the big guy. She's the one who does the hitting. Um, and in some circumstances where we're dealing with technology in the uh, I Spy in, in episode uh, four, where we had Sky uh, figuring out all of the computerized stuff for Ward's glasses when he was pretending to be Akila and, and do the mission that she had. So so we have Sky working as the smart guy sometimes. I definitely think that Fitzsimmons becomes the heart 
in a lot of mm-hmm. ways. I think that they're more naturally suited to, to playing the role of the heart, the emotionally connected part of the team. Um, so I think that you see that, that shift and switch a little bit from time to time. But I mean, basically, that's how the five-man band functions. This is almost textbook five-man band. Um, and I think that that, because we have different roles for all of these, even though some of the people in some of those roles are not people that we particularly care for, but I think it works out pretty well. Yeah, I agree. This is, it's, it's classic. The the five-man band itself is classic. And this is other than a couple of weak points, you know, the classic example of that thing. Yes. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I think it's, it's put together. I think it's very deliberately, considered to be the five man like somebody who did this was thinking about the five man band when they were creating the roles for these characters um because it's it's pretty classic for the writers out there it's a great way to build that group protagonist you know think about these roles give everybody a role you know and then and then slide those characters into it it kind of gives them all their individual space they're not stepping on each other's toes as much you know Mm -hmm. which can be really nice so one of the things that i kind of wanted to talk about because of course with marvel sometimes the most interesting conversations are these philosophical conversations, you know? Yeah, for sure. And I think that what's, what's really interesting, we're seeing this, you know, just right now we're we're seeing this sort of established in these first four episodes, but it's going to continue um, throughout the run of the, the show is who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. I mean, they, when they're talking about uh, Mike in the first episode, they call him an unregistered gifted. So mm-hmm. they have like a register where they're putting all of the gifted people and good guys don't put people on a register, right? (laughs) Yes. Pretty famously, a couple of large groups of real world bad guys kept lists. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not what good guys do. yeah. Yeah. It's not what good guys do yet. Our good guys are doing that. And another thing Mm -hmm. is the, you know, the democratization of information. You know, so, I mean, here we've got our good guys are agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. They are keeping secrets and they are putting people on lists. Um, But yet these are absolutely our good guys. These are the guys who protect. Like We have that whole speech from Maria Hill. The world is changed. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, we need people who will fight the good fight and we are setting them up as good guys and yet they're doing these things which are like questionable. I mean, seriously questionable. So so what did you think about that? This is probably the most obvious example of me tripping myself up as far as being interested in the show. Yeah. Like not knowing where it's going, not knowing where the MCU is going yet mm-hmm. when this starts. Right. Mm-hmm. I just wasn't prepared to see S.H.I.E.L.D. as the good guys. Right. I'm just not. I mean, Mm -hmm. both for in fiction reasons and real world reasons. I am not prepared to blindly accept whatever this group of S.H.I.E.L.D. agents does as the right thing. Yeah. And, and, you know, that swings back around to Sky. I want her to make her points better. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, at least give them pause. Yeah. To think about what they're doing. Mm -hmm. But uh, this is the place where I admit I brought stuff with me that made me have a hard time. It's, you know. I think it's really tough. And I think it's also tough because we have these morally ambiguous spaces, which if it felt like if they were deliberately posing these questions, I think I'd be a little more on board. 
but it doesn't feel like they're posing the questions. It feels like what they're saying is because because if you have your heroes doing something, you are implicitly rubber stamping whatever they do as good. Yeah. You know, yes. the transitive power of goodness, right? If a good person does something, then that must be a good thing. And yet the things that they're doing are, I think, questionable. And we even have a character in Sky, although she's not posing those questions very well, who is actually posing those questions. Then we have a bad guy, Quinn, you know, from the episode mm -hmm. um, from the asset where he's kidnapped Franklin Hall and he says, we've always agreed information should be free. And the democratization of information, of course, is a huge philosophical idea that I think most of us would get behind, right? That, that the powerful don't have a right to hold on to the truth and to keep the truth secret, you know, for whatever mm -hmm. their reasons, even if their reasons are good reasons, if they're well-intentioned reasons, you know, that information should, I think there's a, there's a good argument for information should be out there and that when people get to hide in the shadows, you know, which is one of the things, of course, that, that Sky is accusing S.H.I.E.L.D. of. You hide in the shadows and, you know, do all this stuff and, and nobody knows what you're doing, but I know what you're doing. I'm going to uncover all of your secrets and I'm going to release all of this information, you know. So we have our good guys doing bad things and then our bad guys espousing some of the ideas that we would associate with you know with the right side of this right. you know I don't know it feels like it I, I get a sense of moral ambiguity there that I don't feel is deliberate or I'm not I'm not comfortable yeah. is deliberate if it's a deliberate moral ambiguity I think that those are interesting things to do but because our good guys are, are so established as good and we don't see them Ward doesn't struggle with any of these ideas. Mm -hmm, Coulson doesn't mm -hmm. seem to be struggling with any of these ideas. Nobody's struggling with it, you know, and we have Sky there not making really strong arguments. So it feels like we're, we're not making a clear enough statement that this is supposed to be ambiguous. <laughs> Right. Yes. I mean, I've talked a little bit about espionage fiction for other shows mm -hmm, now. Mm -hmm. I'm comfortable with an ambiguous space for spies. Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, they do very bad things for ostensibly the right reasons. Right. Like, that's the deal. But in this show, because of the tone that it sets yeah. and also because it is part of the larger Marvel Cinematic Universe mm -hmm. where superheroes are a thing, which means there is a right thing to do. Right. I mean, Cap. Right. Who who is our moral compass, if not Cap? Cap is the right. ultimate in moral compass. And we talked before how that's something's going to happen to Peggy and Howard mm -hmm. that makes them realize they can't maintain the ideals of Captain America and be good spies. Yes, exactly. And we know that has to happen because not at this point in this show. And I don't want to jump way far ahead. Yeah. But I mean, we have in continuity answers to that question yeah exactly <laughs> can you be captain america and a spy the mcu says no nope. you know right yeah so it's like if they were building it on purpose there needed to be kind of a change in tone somewhere i, I don't know exactly you know yeah or somewhere where we textually acknowledge the moral ambiguity that we textually yes. acknowledge that sometimes you have to do bad things for good reasons and so i think that that it's interesting it's an interesting question and, you know, and, and here we have this spy organization, right, that works in the shadows, right? So mm -hmm. what does that do to your essential goodness? 
Does that compromise your essential goodness? Is it's you know the question of the ends justify the means? So here mm -hmm. we have are a group of heroes, right? Ostensibly, there's, these are our good guys. We love them, or you know, some of them. Um, and uh, <laughs> right, I mean, I, like, so what? Listen, is, I felt that shade. Right? Thank you. <laughs> so, what does it mean to be a hero within the context of the spy fi? What does that mean? Yeah. You know, yeah. and I do think that in a lot of spy fi fiction, they sidestep this a little bit by making a fake bad guy. There's an organization that gets to just that gets to actually be as evil as they need it to be to make our heroes that good, even though they're spies. You may remember I made a joke about us versus them. Yes. But that was things that were actually said. They couldn't even make Russians. <laughs> like the actual KGB, the bad guy on the very British Avengers or Secret Agent Man. They would say us versus them. Right. right? Mm -hmm. The problem here is that the closest we get to that is Quinn, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. And like Sky, he says some of the right things. He actually does probably a better job of making the case than Sky, yeah. except his entire case is undermined by the fact that he's fantastically wealthy. Well, yeah, and has been, you know, raping resources in order to get that wealth. So, right. yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, even Hall points that yeah. out. Mm -hmm. You know, it's amazing how much money you make with uh, information being free. Exactly. So, at the very least, we need to be okay with our good guys being bad because the bad guys are worse. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't feel like that kind of show while they're still bringing the questions up. It doesn't feel like the show is even deliberately asking those questions, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, <laughs> right, that's the yeah. whole thing. Like, that's one of the crunchy parts of these kinds of stories is that, yes, what we're doing isn't great, but it's what needs to be done. Like, we're doing yeah. what needs to be done. And there's also that essential, I mean, it's not a, it's not a noir story, but there is that, that essential element of corruption that comes from doing the thing that ends justifying the means you know mm -hmm. there is like this this i i will step into the corruption in order to preserve this space this innocence this goodness for everybody else you know and i think that that's one of the really neat kind of crunchy sacrifices that these kinds of characters make that somebody like cap doesn't and won't yeah you know and won't right yeah but they can like like peggy carter can do that you know, she can live in that space. And I think that Coulson and this team can also live in that space, but we are really seeing them as like the ultimate in good guys. You know, mm -hmm. like we're not asking these questions at all. And I feel like that's, that's kind of a missed opportunity for some kind of crunchy, you know, moral texture within this space. I mean, if it's not what they're doing, I hesitate to declare it a missed opportunity, but it feels like they're doing it just enough yeah. for me to notice, but not enough for us to put it back to bed. Because it seems like know. it has to be deliberate, and yet they don't seem, I, you know, maybe it's this, maybe it's that they are deliberately doing it. They're just not interested in those questions. Maybe so. You know, yeah. maybe that's Well, just then just don't is. do it, you guys. Exactly. God. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> then don't do it. But they are building that in there. So I don't know. I mean, it feels to me like a missed opportunity. And I don't think that that's a question. We sort of start out with that, but I don't think it's anything that, that they spend a lot of time doing. I just don't think that the story creators are really interested in those questions or in telling that kind of morally dirty story. I don't want you to confirm or deny but my prediction is that the Winter Soldier Game Changer probably answers the questions as much as they're going to get answered. I think, yes. I think you will see that. And I kind of was, 
after the fact, once I knew there was a Winter Soldier game changer yeah. and tried to come back, I was kind of like, all right, I'm prepared for that to be the answer so I can leave it alone right now. Mm-hmm. But I never quite made it. You never quite made it. That's that's when things get interesting. I mean, honestly, it's right there. It's like at episode 16, 17. Like that's when things start to get really, really interesting. But it takes us a while to get there. So meanwhile, some other things that are going on here, as you know, if you've been listening to me talk for any extended period of time, I'm not a huge fan of action scenes, fight scenes, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. They don't really interest me. I actually like it in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. for two reasons. One, because um, Agent May is so fantastic. I also Mm -hmm. like the fact like guns are a huge problem in fiction because guns have this incredible unearned power and they create a huge power differential. Even when you have people who are like pointing guns at each other, that's like this escalation of power to this point where it becomes ridiculous. You know, Um, one of the things that I like about May, which is something that Joss Whedon did in Buffy, guns were never useful in Buffy. Whenever there was a gun, it was completely useless and we got rid of it as soon as possible. Um, May, while we see her with some guns in these first opening episodes, as we move forward, we're going to see that May prefers hand-to-hand combat. May is not a fan of of the gun either um, and in general will not use them. But I really like, first of all, that we we do, uh, we've got some gunplay going on, but it's usually not. This is almost always hand-to-hand combat. We, we almost never have guns in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., aside from from the night night gun um, which <laughs> knocks people out and does not kill them and I love that you know um, so that's a lot of fun and that's that's kind of goes into this this technology place which is something that's always fun especially in these sci-fi kind of things I mean money penny exists for a reason like these are these are fun spaces to be in these you know gadgets and contraptions but I really like too is that men will hit women and men will yeah. fight women as equals in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. forever, through the whole thing. It's never a question. Coulson hits Camilla. May fights with men who hit her back. Happens all the time. And when we have a damseled character, it's Fitz. Fitz is the one who gets kidnapped by the guys on the plane <laughs> and with, right. with the, the gun held to his head, right? So, um, so we're not worrying about these traditional kind of gendered spaces where, you know, a woman can hit a man, but a man can't hit a woman because she is not his equal, you know? Um, And I think that like we see that May is beyond everybody's equal. (laughs) May will kick anybody's ass any day, you know, and twice on Sundays. So, um, so I really like that with the fight scenes. I like the just presumed equality in the fight scenes. Um, Coulson does not hesitate at all to just smash Camilla in the face. <laughs> and you do I not like treat that. dangerous people like they aren't dangerous. Exactly, because they're women, you know? I mean, so I really like that we do that. Um, damseling in general is is a device that like, okay, fine, whatever. On occasion, you know, having somebody that you love in danger is an emotional stake that raises, you know, raises the emotional stakes. So that's always fine. But I liked that it was Fitz. I mean, Simmons was there too, but it was Fitz who was in the camera with the gun held to his head, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I like that. They've built two characters into the space. Yes. That makes sense to be damseled. Exactly. Exactly. Like they're not here for that job. So when, when they go out into the field or in the case of Camilla and her, crew Mm -hmm. the field comes into their home space Mm -hmm. they make sense as the ones who should be in more danger than anybody else honestly so should sky but whatever exactly 
Exactly. Right. But we don't care enough about Sky. So somebody, <laughs> somebody holds a gun to Sky's head. We're like, eh, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Do it. Dare you. <laughs> Yeah, so I like that about the the action sequences. I like the the technology is huge for me. Like I'm yeah. I'm a tech girl. I love the drones with the seven dwarves. I love the night night gun. Um, I love the technology that they have. You know the kind of hologram technology when Fitz and Simmons are discussing the 084 and trying to figure out what it does and all this kind of stuff. All that really really cool stuff. It all appears as magic to me. I mean Arthur C. Clarke, right? You know sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. My phone is indistinguishable from magic to me. <laughs> you know, like as far as absolutely, concerned, that yeah. is absolute magic. So I like we are in a very very solid science fiction space, but it feels magical to me. Well, which is honestly how it should feel in a superhero universe. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm prepared to be slightly more grounded because they're Shield agents and not Avengers, right? But at the same time, you live in this other world, Mm -hmm. you know, and you're supposed to be shield guys, the buffer. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah, it should feel right on the edge of magical. Um, Was there time travel involved with this thing? (laughs) How did it get into this Incan temple? I mean, you know, exactly. And I mean, you know, and it's based on Tesseract technology, which is something. So we're referencing kind of like the wider magical universe. But Tesseract is science, right? I mean, it's just science that we don't understand yet. And so it appears as magic. But, you know, we have a sense that the Tesseract is a scientific thing, right? Until... This most recent summer blockbuster, but that's a different. We will have we'll get to that it. discussion very soon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, so I, one of the larger story arcs that we've got going on, you know, throughout this is this um, this idea of Tahiti. Tahiti, it's a mm-hmm. magical place, which is one of these things that you will see Phil Coulson repeating. Um, and we do have this hint that whatever happened to him was much more complicated than what Maria Hill is stating. You were dead for eight seconds. You keep, Every time you tell the story, it gets longer, you know. Um, and then we have the moment with the doctor. He really doesn't know, does he? And then, of course, Maria Hill says he can never know. Right. So it's so dramatic. It it's so, so incredibly dramatic. soap opera. It really is. And I sorry, whatever anybody know. says, he can never know. Of course, he's going to know. Like, we're going to find yeah, out. Yeah. Like, this is going to happen, you know? Um, so I think that that is, it's nice that we sort of launch that mystery behind, you know, what happened to Phil, that it's not just like, oh, well, we wanted him, you know, in the TV show. So we're pretending that he didn't actually die, you know, right. uh, when he got shanked by the Asgardian Mussolini, which I thought was a very fun line for. Uh... <laughs> Honestly, it might be giving Loki a little too much uh, credit for organizational skill. Oh, yeah. But other than that, no, yeah, 100 percent. Absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> um, but it's 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 kind of fun and interesting that we've got this question. I'm not sure that the question is compelling enough to keep people interested. (laughs) That was one I, again, expected to simmer for a good long time because they'd they'd touch it real fast and then get away from it. And usually the touching was Phil being very weird Mm -hmm. about saying it was a magical place, you know? Yeah. I like it. I expected that one to be on the back burner. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Because of the way they were treating it. Well, you know, and that's so. and that's really the only thing. I think that's the only mention. It's in that first episode 
Tahiti's a magical place. He can never know. And then I don't think we go back in these first four episodes to that. If they do, it's just a mention of Tahiti. Yeah. And I don't remember it specifically. I just feel like he said that once to Sky, but it might have been in that first episode. It might have been. It might have been. It's interesting because that honestly is one of the things that that overarching story is one of the things that actually does make this part of the story interesting to me now that I know everything that's happened but we really play it with such a light touch and it's one of those things that's easy to forget as you're you know getting the 084 and you're doing the you know Franklin Hall and you got the I spy and all this kind of stuff you know we start out with this idea that there's something bigger happening and then we immediately go into this extremely episodic storytelling you know, um, where they have a little adventure and then everybody's back on the plane at the end and it's all safe, you know, and it's all fine. And then they're going to have another adventure and it's all going to reset at the end of every story, at the end of every episode. You know, we really do get this very episodic feel. And I think that now at this point, especially in something that is based in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, we are expecting bigger stories, bigger arcs, something happening that's going to you know span through the whole season something compelling that is going to make me not want to stop at the end of the asset that's going to make me want to move into i spy but because we have these very very clear stopping points at the end of every episode when we reset it really feels like there isn't anything bigger going on even though there is, and I think that that's a really understandable reason why Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. hemorrhaged viewers the way that it did, why mm-hmm. a lot of people drop off in the middle of the season and bounce off of it and never come back. But there are things happening here that, although they are very, very subtle, um, are actually going to be interesting in the longer run of the story. So I just have to say, everybody has to just hang in there. <laughs> you know, going back to kind of the tone of it, where they kind of bring up these nebulous mm-hmm morally ambiguous questions, but they don't really seem that interested in it. I keep feeling like it's the tone, right? Because if you gave me any indication Mm -hmm. that something else was going on with the things that we're building, even if it was just as slow, but you gave me an indication that it was happening, even if it's more Berea Hill, he can never know. Right. Or something, right? But tell me something, right? Either that or if you're going to do it episodic, I'm actually kind of fine with that, yeah. too. But do it big. Play in the sandbox of the MCU, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't even know exactly what I mean by that, but it doesn't feel like they're using it. Well, it's one of these things that as Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. moves forward, they've got these little codas at the end, which now they're using, you know, just that little bit at the end. And it's usually a joke like the joke that I, I didn't particularly care for at the end of I Spy, where um, Sky is using the glasses to oh. undress Ward, which is just incredibly gross. It would be gross if a man was doing it to a woman. And guess what? It's also gross when a woman does that to a man. <laughs> You know, yeah. so um, but they use those codas as as jokes or as cappers. Now, in the future, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. will use the codas to speak to what's going on in the bigger story. You know, what's what's happening on a grander scale. That's perfect. If they had just done that, yeah. then I would be like, oh, OK, now I understand what you're doing. I'm still not sure. 13, 16 episodes is going to hold me, but I at least know what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. And they figure it out, but it, it 
a little bit too late. I think, I think they lost yeah. a whole yeah. bunch of their audience before they got there, um, which is a shame. But overall, I love Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Knowing everything in the grander scale, I even really enjoy these episodes, you know? Um, and I think that they're fun. I thought the Gravitonium effect, just the visual effect oh, of the Gravitonium yeah. was fantastic. That, mm-hmm. that whole episode was kind of, uh, without jumping too far ahead, to my favorite part. That episode contains my favorite part. Okay. So. <laughs> well, no, let's go ahead. We're about there. So what was your favorite part? Okay. My favorite part is the confrontation between Coulson and Hall in the sideways lab. Mm-hmm. It's obviously done on a TV budget. Like they nailed stuff to the wall sideways and turned the camera cockeyed mm-hmm. and shot around it in a really interesting, like tight, wide you know, like if you know what you're looking for with TV stuff, that's what they were doing. Yeah. But I honestly feel like if they tried to do something like that in any of the big budget Marvel stuff, they would try so hard that it would feel not real. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. um, which is a complaint that that some of the less forgiving people in my life will make about lots of blockbusters, but especially some of these very CG heavy Marvel blockbusters, you know? And so that was my favorite part because it was so complicated, but so worth it because that's gravity you're messing with, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, This is very serious. Mm -hmm. And then to actually use it to sort of uh, end the threat more or less. Yeah. um, With, you're right, that's fantastic effect with the Gravitonium was great. I mean, it could... If they had just done it to be cute, Mm -hmm. I would have still appreciated it. But that they did it to be cute and also to end the episode was pretty slick. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was really good. That was a really good effect. That's one of the things, too, about Ages of S.H.I.E.L.D. is that the I think the effects, you know, the visual work that they do is is really powerful. I mean, it's very, Mm -hmm. very good, especially for, you know, a TV budget. Like what they're able to do and how they're able to like the the hologram effects with Fitz and Simmons in the lab, like all of the things that that they did. I never found any of the either physical or CGI effects to be cheesy or unconvincing. Yes. You know? Yes, absolutely. So I really like that. Okay, I'm desperately curious. (laughs) What is your favorite part of these first four episodes? You know, I actually struggle a little bit. To choose one. I mean, I love the moment with Fitz and Simmons when they first show up and they're fighting and they're talking over each other and they have this. It's pretty delightful. Wonderful rapport. I absolutely love that. Um, But I got to say, like, the thing that delights me the most is when Fury is yelling at at Phil for, you know, cracking (laughs) up the bus, right? Really? Really, Colson? Six days? It only took you six days to take a completely renovated piece of -of state-of-the-art machinery and turn it into scrap? My team acted with my authority. Don't talk to me about authority. Do you know how much this plane cost? It's got a bar. Really nice one. Talking to me about authority. You know, I have the authority to downgrade your ass to a Winnebago. Like, I love... That whole thing. There's something about, I mean, Samuel L. Jackson just like seriously was made to delight me. Like everything he does, I love. I love him in everything I've seen him in. He's so much fun as Nick Fury. I love when he's yelling at Phil. And then, of course, you know, we have that moment at the end where, you know, he makes a joke about a fish tank and then Phil likes, like, go oh, cancel the fish tank, you know. 
It's just there's something about that whole scene that just delights me. And it also anchors this whole thing in kind of the the wider Marvel universe. So seeing Maria Hill, seeing Director Fury, uh, all of that is is kind of fun. And uh, and so I, I, I think probably that's my favorite part. But there's a lot of stuff that I loved here. It's pretty tough to top Sam Jackson. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, that's legit. I should have seen that coming. <laughs> He's pretty good. He's pretty good. (laughs) All right. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Listen Up A-Holes. We'll be back next time with our discussion of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Season 1, Episodes 5 through 7, which lead us up to the events of Thor The Dark World. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, come find us on Twitter. Lonnie is at Lonnie Diane Rich, and I'm at Joshua Unruh. And the hashtag is listen up, a-holes. <laughs> Both Chipperish Media and Pulp Diction Productions are entirely supported by listeners like you. And you are our heroes. So show your support by visiting our Patreon pages or leaving a great review on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for more people to find us and join in the conversation. The links to Apple Podcasts and both of our Patreon pages are easy to find right in our show notes. So until next time, remember, we have the authority to downgrade your ass to a Winnebago. You never know when you and I are going to be brilliant, just well, like not time even intending. Is the easy right? Answer. Exactly. <laughs> it's your job, Joshua. You have had fun up till now. If you have to swallow a little Agents of Shield, you'll be fine. <laughs>